There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine this. You're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you. Your desert island dish. What is it? Every week, your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us. Hello. Hello. We'll ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip, and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common. They bloody love food. Welcome to Dish. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dish. Paul, have you eaten anything exciting this week? Well, why does that sound rude when I ask it? What do you mean? I don't know. Well, no, it's not like if you asked me if I ate something exciting, I stuck it somewhere. (laughs) I ate it. So, listen, speaking of, look, we're on an island. Yes. Which makes me instantly think of the ocean, which makes me think of pirates. The problem is, Tegan, during lockdown, I fell into a massive hole where, and you know this, I have ADHD, so occasionally I get really obsessed with stuff. Yes, I'm aware. I have... that look on your face. <laughs> so I have developed this bizarre late life passion for the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which it just it just came on really suddenly. I did a favor for a friend of ours, Zara. Yes. And she is a very good baker. She makes amazing gingerbread cookies. For my birthday last year, she knew that I was into the Mandalorian, so she made me little Grogu cookies. They were so lovely. She asked what I wanted right, as a kind of thank you for this favour I did for her. And I mentioned that I was into Pirates of the Caribbean, so she's made me, you know, uh, Jack Sparrow's ship yes, in the I'm franchise? Aware, yes, It's called the Black Pearl. And so she kind of ordered these custom kind of cookie shapes and black icing and made me little gingerbread black pearls. So the best thing I've eaten recently is a pirate ship. <laughs> it's so gorgeous. But what we're going to do is I'm actually going to ask Zara if we can share her gingerbread recipe because, honestly, we've not had gingerbread as good as this since we are in London and we were staying in Notting Hill mm. and there was an actual designated gingerbread shop. It was the most expensive and wonderful thing that I've ever seen. But Zara's gingerbread, I want to say, is better. It is better than Notting Hill gingerbread. Yeah, it's amazing. So we will try and convince her to give you all the recipe because it's absolutely incredible. I just also want to tell the listeners one more thing. As you pointed out, you are absolutely obsessed with Pirates of the Caribbean at the moment. So much so that when we return to our apartment building, and we live in an apartment building that has a a multi-level underground car park, and we're on the very bottom level, and it's really... (laughs) To get into it, you've got to drive down this ramp that is really actually quite steep. The first time I drove down it, I went, oh, this just will not do. And it's very dark and it's very warm down there. It is. And it reminds Paul of the ride, the Disney ride, the Pirates of the Caribbean, which if you've not been on it, it's, you get put in this little boat and oh, it's just the most magical thing. You get sailed past all these ships that are in battle. But it's very humid and you do. Ha- it feels the same way, basically. Yeah, like we are the, the budget version of the Pirates of Caribbean. So Paul now insists that whenever we return home... <laughs> We have to play the original audio from like I got this forty-five minute audio rip. Someone's taken their like a professional microphone into the ride oh, God. and mastered it. So you hear this dead men tell no tales. Yo, as Tegan's went to pirate life for me, so I have to sit up the top near the roller door. Hang on, hang wait on, wait for I, Paul to line on. up the track. Tegan, I'm just queuing it up. Tegan, and go. <laughs> then I have to get into the car park, and what I have to do is go down certain bits really slowly, and then take my foot off the brakes so the car suddenly speeds up and it's like, whoa. It's very dangerous. I guess what we're saying is <laughs> lockdown's going very well. Paul, you are adorable. I think you're the sweetest man on earth. Thank you. And yes, lockdown is taking its toll and we are doing anything we can to stay afloat at the moment. See, boats. But there is one man that we know who is actually, who is not only 
surviving lockdown, but he is thriving. He is absolutely kicking lockdown in the butt like the trained weapon that he is. That's right. Today's guest is a beloved comedian, radio and TV presenter. And you may have caught him last year on SAS where a bunch of trained special forces operatives put him through the ringer and he survived and he got to the very end of the line. He's a lover of wine and food. I mean, who wouldn't be after what he went through? And as such, he is perfect for dish. Please welcome the utterly wonderful Merrick Watts. You're now stranded on our food island. Welcome. You'll, uh, you're never going to see your family again. I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't know if that's such a bad thing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually kind of the appeal for it. Anyway, it take me. T- it's Fantasy Island is what it is. You think it's a horror island. It's actually Fantasy Island. I guess, how are you doing? You're locked down. You're definitely locked down where you are, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in Sydney, so I'm, I'm double locked down. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a great thing, but, you know, it's like anything, just crack on and find the positives and keep moving. A lot of people uh, kind of sank into, and this is going to sound weird, but a lot, of, um, a lot of people develop kind of culinary and drinking habits during lockdown as a kind of coping mechanism, but you, you know, you seem to be keeping it really classy. How are you not going into the full-on binge mode with things or are you keeping it fairly restrained no look i've got because i have such incredible access to wine because i work you know work with the wine industry and you know on any given week i might be sent two dozen bottles of wine so yeah it's so there's always and and i buy wine as well it's not like i'm a cheapskate and just expect it i do have a phenomenal amount of wine um to access and i love booze but yeah, one thing I, I have is very strict disciplines around drinking because um, I think that you have to. You just you just have to. So I don't I don't drink typically. I don't drink I don't drink Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays. I always drink on Wednesdays, uh, Wine's Day. I have a bottle of wine with my wife. <laughs> Thursdays typically maybe maybe not maybe a little wine and Fridays and Saturdays yeah absolutely. So I, I, I keep this I keep the disciplines and I exercise lots and keep myself fit because otherwise I would just become an alcoholic. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. I gotta ask, so I know that, you know, up until you know, we worked uh, I think it was last year, time has no meaning for me anymore. Maybe last year we worked together on Hoovians and I'd only met you a, a couple of times before that. We didn't get to work together very, very much. But I feel like in the past year or no, the past two years, you've become a completely different person in some way healthy fit wine fancy guy you're proper mm-hmm. fancy now merrick uh- <laughs> yeah i'm a, i call myself a wine warrior or the wine weapon i give myself all sorts of names and i talk about myself in the third person because he loves it because um, <laughs> <laughs> it makes him feel good so yeah it's uh, look it's not unfair tegan i reckon i i have transformed in in heaps of ways and kind of but i think it's you know, a lot of it was down to kind of understanding that I'd, I'd lost a lot of confidence. I'd lost a lot of kind of self, um, uh, yeah, self-confidence and just kind of lost my own way of doing things. Mm. And that just was accumulative and it was kind of circumstantial. But then uh, I went and did that television show, SAS Australia, and it just completely rebuilt me by tearing me to pieces. So, yeah. And that was the point of it for me was to literally just eviscerate myself, tear myself down into tiny little pieces and rebuild myself back into a weapon. One of the reasons we spoke last year again was, and this might sound ridiculous to anybody who knows what I look like, <laughs> But I watched you on the show and between yourself and Sabrina, I was ridiculously inspired by what you guys did. Uh, Paul can attest to the fact that I got a bit weird for a long time. You got, you got a lot weird for a long time. I, I was, was Really? I was in. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. It was for, for a little while, you and Sabrina was all I would talk about. It was. It got weird. She made me like put a fake beard on and... <laughs> Kidnapper in the middle of the night and pretend to be Ant. Weird role play, but sure, oh, yeah. whatever. <laughs> so then uh, I was talking to my agent about this, and she went, "Oh, funny story. They're actually casting for season two of Australian SAS, and you mm-hmm. were kind enough to chat to me about it because I stupidly went, "Oh, I want to do that," and you you talked me through this whole process and how much more difficult it was than even we got on the show, and I the show looked horrific. But yeah. when I spoke to you, you sounded like you were still coming down. You were almost still recovering from this physically and emotionally traumatic period. Are you okay now? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm good now. But I, I, I happily admit to it. And I was told, and I was aware of it going into it, 
Um, I was told by an SAS soldier he's, who has run selection courses here in Australia for the real SAS, and he said, uh, mate, you are going to physically and mentally transform and you're going to need to to get through it. He said, but also too, he said, if you go the whole way, if you do complete that course, he said, you will take months to heal from it physically and mentally. He mm. said, you will you will leave everything behind. It will shred you and it, it'll change you in ways you can't possibly imagine. So it's not like going off and doing tough mudder where you know you go and do something which is extremely difficult uh, and i reckon i'd struggle with it i'm not saying it's not hard but it's about doing it day in day out with very little nutrition and very little sleep on constant high alert and fear status and then when you stop doing that you know hormonally you've changed physiologically you've changed mm-hmm. you're not the same person because you've triggered all these kind of survival hormones and weird things that you would not normally in the day-to-day society we don't trigger those massive amounts of cortisol we don't trigger those massive amounts of adrenaline we don't trigger those mass and continually and these weird little kind of you know smaller chemical imbalances that uh, are a result of pushing yourself through survival mode that get triggered and it takes you months to come down off that ledge it's incre- it's like ptsd it's really really weird yeah. um and i don't know i know that certainly some of the other recruits i've spoken to felt the same way i was like yeah there's a massive come down and you're right, Tegan, I was pretty unhinged there for a while. <laughs> but it, it also, too, I was, my body was healing as well. So, you know, your, your body's trying to go through. I'd lost so much muscle mass. And, you know, there's no fat on me. And I'd lost a lot of muscle mass as a result, as we all had, um, that, you, you know, compositionally, your body's different. I think one of the greatest things and the most terrifying things was that moment where you were asked to tell a joke. And oh, don't. It makes that, me feel it, so upset. Like the blood oh. drains. It makes me feel sick. It's, it makes me... I watched it again. It's oh, so dark. Merrick. But the thing about it was... <laughs> Merrick, you know... It, yeah, that was worse than any of the trauma. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the idea that... Okay, so if you're a funny person or you tell jokes or you're an entertainer and someone tells you to be funny and you, you, yeah. you are funny, the standards are much higher. Whereas if you're a politician or an athlete or whatever and you tell an okay joke, you get given this kind of... Like, you get given a pass on so much stuff. Do you think that as a comedian you got the inverse with physical prowess on the show? Uh, <laughs> oh, God. I don't know how to answer that. It's Look, it's it's so difficult to try to um, uh, explain where you, what it's like, right, and, and right. what you're mm. thinking and what's going on. Yeah, I don't like it. Look, when somebody says to me, tell me your joke, like it's not – that's not actually what comedians do anyway. And the funny thing is when I was being interrogated, that was the like the furthest thing from my mind of what they would ask me to do. I didn't know whether or not they even knew I was a comedian, so right. I wasn't expecting that. The other thing too is that like that came off the back of uh, four of the toughest days of my life. That was, so the interrogation, um, where they asked me to do that, where they brought me into what they call the mirror room, because there's, there's a mirror. That sounds like it's going to be lovely. Like I'm picturing Versailles and no, champagne see, I'm and picturing, all. I'm yeah, picturing no, no, Bruce, no. Bruce Lee fighting a guy with claws is what I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I know both those references, so well done to you both. I'm, <laughs> I'm equally impressed. Game of Death and Versailles. Um, yeah, look, it's pretty it's pretty confronting. But like I was also too, I'd, I had by that stage I'd busted two ribs and mm. I was in a lot of pain consistently. But also too, I'd been absolutely flogged physically uh, in the two days prior to that. Like I'd had a really, really rough day when they brought me in um, to the mirror room and I was exhausted. Like I was in so much, at one point I was, it was very early in the, in the piece. I was in so much physical pain from one of the challenges that I could barely walk. Like I, I could barely crouch down. It was incredibly tough. And they see that. And that's when they go for you. They get you when you, they see you are at a weak point. And that's when they try to snap you. So they brought me in when I was at my weakest. So when I came in, they said, tell me a joke. I was like, huh? What? <laughs> what, is, what is, am I still a comedian? I don't even know who I am anymore. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of hard. But like after that, to be honest, after that interrogation, after the mirror room and after that fourth day, day five is when it really kicked off for me. And from that day onwards, I was fine. Everything was fine. Did you watch it back and go, shit, I should have said this? Did you come up with a joke? You know, when you so yeah. often you go back and, yeah. Yeah, but Paul, you know what they did too? They did a little bit of clever editing there as well. I to bet make it they look- did. 
to make it look like it was longer and I was more stunned. And it was like, I was just going, that's not exactly how it played out. But, you know, that's television and, and, yeah. and it, that's you kind of expect that. But other than that, like pretty much what what you see on that show is pretty much how it went down. Like there's mm. no retakes, there's no second chances, there's no, oh, we'll just do that again. That never happened. Never happened until the very, very end after we'd completed and it was all wrapped up in filming. And I was in a helicopter dressed up with borderline hypoth. I was going into hypothermia and then mm. I said, sorry, Merrick, we just need to get one little pickup. Um, <laughs> so can you please take off all of those warm clothes you put on? And- <laughs> Come outside of the helicopter and stand on this freezing cold mountain and talk to us for something that will never, ever make it to air anyway. Um, and we'll just watch you go into a hypothermic state. And I did. Yay. It's fascinating that you say that, that it was so close to that experience because we spoke with a guy called Lucas Miller. He was in season one of that television show Alone. Have you ever seen yeah, that? I love, his- yeah, I love it. I love right. it. Right. So we spoke with Lucas. He survived in Northern Vancouver Island for yeah. 39 days. So he went pretty well. And very similar to you, he said that although he was unhappy with a couple of the takes because they really focused on his emotional really heightened emotional moments. He said it was pretty accurate. What you see is what you get. That's what it felt like. So you you think that really when you watched it back, you didn't see anything and go, nah, that's actually not what it felt like or that's not what happened. Yeah, look, there there is some stuff there where you just go, oh, hang on a second. You know, that that was edited – to sway people's thinking or, or um, but not so much, not like on the physical challenges. That's, mm. that is what it is. You can kind of see that, but there's some editing there of things that were taken out and, and some crafty stuff. I mean, honestly, some of the stuff with Faras, where, you know, I obviously had um, for anybody who saw it, I had a little bit of a blow up with Faras because of his behavior and his attitude towards the group. Um, and I'd had a gutful, but it made it look as though, I was leading some sort of expedition. But the fact of the matter is, which was never announced, was that on that given day, every single day there's what they call a duty recruit. And every single day one person is in charge for speaking on behalf of the group. They have to be the, the delegate, right? So that was my day. So I had to take that lead. I actually told the group, I don't reckon we should be doing this. I think it's, it's, it's not do it. But everyone said, well, you have to because you're the duty recruit. That all gets cut out. Looks yeah. like I'm leading a charge against him. Having said that, I don't regret it at all. I mean, he was acting like a buffoon. One of the things I fell in love with, though, was the friendship between you and Sabrina. Is that, oh, yeah. is that still a strong, fuck, I loved that. Yeah, she's unreal. Yeah, yeah, we do lot. We did lots of talks. I spoke to her uh, about two weeks ago and I'm doing some stuff with her in the future. We get, we, we have little Zoom parties and stuff. She's unreal. Sabrina is just, she's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, but like super resilient, super strong mentally, you know, physically just a weapon, but yeah. just like, it's, it's great. I really love the fact that Sabrina and I have become such good friends because like on paper, very different people. She's yeah. half, she's half my age. You know, she's a gay woman, half my age, is a professional athlete, and it's so different. Like, our backgrounds are, are, could hardly be more, uh, I suppose, not diametrically opposed, but they're just very different. But we just get along really, really well. I find mm. her just, uh, the moment I met her, I just went, she's good. She's got a good, just a really good vibe and a great energy about her. And she looked after me on that course, and, and I looked after her, and we, we kind of buddied up a lot. And I don't think that was portrayed as much on the the vision, but yeah, but she's, a ve- I'll tell you something, cause I know this will interest you cause it's food, but you get Sabrina is a vegan and you know, we get meager rations on that show and it, you have low points, you know, everyone yeah. has a low point and, and sometimes food has an amazing effect. It can just cheer you up and change your mood. You know, a small amount of nutrition can go a long way. And, um, on a couple of occasions, trying to do the right thing. And also, too, you're so tired and so exhausted and mentally fatigued. You just forget stuff. Mm. So on no less than two occasions, I tried to make Sabrina feel better by offering her animal products. (laughs) 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 She was having a really bad day. And I I walked up and I said, hey, here you have my egg. And she goes, Merrick, again, I'm vegan. I don't eat eggs. <laughs> I tell you what, though, what a woman as well, not only going through all that, but sticking to her ethical guns oh when God. she's probably starving, literally starving. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Wow. I mean, and also too, like, you know, the, they provided her good, some really good options with, with vegan food. But I mean, it's what you want in those kind of um, environments is 
protein and carbs yeah. and, and protein from meats. Like I was absolutely, um, you know, craving meat and craving carbs the whole time I was there. When the season that you were on started, I had a little inkling that you were going to do well, partially because I'd seen Mickey D perform in the UK version of SAS and he did pretty well, but also just because I know that to be a comedian in Australia, you've got to be wily and you've got to be, you've got to be tenacious and there's there's grit, you know. I I didn't know that you were going to go all the way. I'm not going to lie. I was pretty bloody (laughs) impressed that you did. Have you looked through the cast for the second season and made your predictions? You'd have an idea of who's going to last and who's going to fall out early. Yeah, totally, absolutely. I mean, I could, I can, I can look at that list and tell you who the top four would be. But I think that depending on how far people will go, mm-hmm. there's certain elements that um, I think character traits are most important. It's not necessarily about how fit you are or how strong you are. It's mm-hmm. the, the, to get through something like that, it's comes down to how much you can endure physically mm. and mentally. You know, like um, Mitchell, Mitchell uh, Johnson was a, he's an awesome guy, terrific guy, super fit. You know, he punched my brain in in the boxing. Like I was like, man, this guy's a weapon. He's going to go a long way. And then he was gone on like day three, at the end of day three or four or something like that. He just, yeah. he, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. And it's about endurance and pain. And I think, you know, if you're a comedian, maybe you've got it. I don't think it's a, a trait familiar to all comedians, though. I, I like honestly, I look around Australia's com- comedy community and I just go, "Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't have a crack." There's maybe, there's maybe, there's maybe one or two people I would even suggest going on that course. And I don't, I honestly, I can't think of any comedian offhand straight away in Australia who I reckon would go the whole way. You were very kind to me. You didn't tell me not to do it. I think you were pretty blunt about what my chances would be but you were really kind at the time yeah i think everyone should do it like i mean it's a you should go and have a crack absolutely like go on it you will learn like if you're there for three days you will learn more about yourself in three days than Mm. you would in the real world it's just there is nowhere to hide there is nothing that you everything is stripped down broken down rebuilt and you see everything like a pane of glass and it's incredible and the funny thing is you see things about other people and it's you know i i, I don't like to speculate because i need to kind of see them in the field the, yeah. the new recruits that's why it's unfair to kind of pick them out now i've got an imagining of who i think would go well um but i can tell you this though uh by about day five or six i knew who would be there towards the end i knew who would be there in the pointy end you can just yeah, tell wow. by by day five, I was like, nah, I know who I know who's going to be there towards the end. And in my mind, I was one of them. Because one of the things I'm doing now is I'm thinking about, this is going to sound weird, Merrick, but you know in Queer Eye where they kind of, the, the guys come along and they zhuzh the shit out of these people's lives and you go, there's no way that's going to stick. Like there's no, if you came back in two months to that guy's apartment, he's going to be living back in filth again. Has any of the stuff that you've learned and those lessons you fought for so hard fallen away or have you managed to kind of stay the course this long after the show? Oh, I, I don't think you can ever... I think it's it's an epoch moment in your life. Like it, mm. it's if particularly if you go as far as we did and you get to the end and you go through the selection process, I can't see how it can't change you permanently, forever. Um, you know, do you still work out to the same standards? You don't need to, so there's no point. You just exhaust yourself getting ready for some of that. But I do some, use some of those training methods, and sometimes I do particular training methods to kind of challenge myself and to remind myself of um, not the pain, but the endurance of discomfort is very yeah. important. Um, so yeah, it's a, it gives you awesome life life lessons. But uh, on the other side of that, it just, if you take away those learnings and you continue to, I suppose, massage them and, and keep them active and and recite those those mental learnings, it does make you, a different person mentally weapon. I feel weaponized, not like euphorically weaponized. I just feel like I'm capable of doing anything I set my mind to. And the resilience, you know, particularly during COVID, um, the kind of, you know, growth mindset that you have of going, okay, this is a shit show. Where's the positive? Mm. Stay positive, stay positive, Mm. stay positive. And I think that's a a big part of it that, you know, even in, in really dire circumstances, I'm very quick, uh, to appraise things and 
the resilience is is massive and determination is massive. So you, you kind of you, you get to learn what your, your strong suits are and then you use those to, you know, your advantage. So for me, I mean, I've always been very determined. So I, I knew that. Um, I always thought I was reasonably resilient, but I, it turns out, uh, you know, resilience is a resilience and determination, I reckon, are probably two of my strongest characteristic traits. Did it bring out any qualities in you, you that you didn't have before? As in, because sometimes people say that these events can uh, bring out things in you that you had that you didn't realize you had, but did it create anything new in you? Did it, it does that make sense? It just made me realize how my own brain works and to be comfortable with that. I'm more comfortable with the, my psyche, my mentality, my my weaknesses and my strengths than I've ever been in my life because I've mm. broken them all down and had a look at it. But the the one thing I kind of um, wasn't aware of until after I'd done it, which I was, I'm very pleased about, is that I actually, and it's it's both a positive and a negative, is that I thrive in high pressure environments. Like um, I don't like them. It's really weird. This is the strange part. I don't like them. I'd rather, I really like drinking on beaches. I like being, <laughs> I, I love nothing more than some satay sticks and a swim up bar with some bintang, right? That's me. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that my brain and, and the, the, my composition requires high end, high pressure um, environments that I can thrive in. So, and the show kind of exposed that, but I didn't understand it or learn it really until it was kind of um, observed by somebody who is a former SAS operator. And he said, the, the high pressure environments in there is where you really kind of clicked in. And, mm. um, and it was the mental processing. It's like, I like it. So when I was in the outside world, there was, I had a really high stakes, high pressure environment situation uh, at the start of the year with a COVID situation. And I had to make very, very concise decisions calmly, effectively, and with it, with poise. And it was just, it was, a, and it was a horrible environment. But I just went, I got this, and it was just smooth through. Wow. And it was because I actually, my I, my personality requires moments of high pressure and and high stakes. God, you should have been a chef by the sounds of things. Yeah, oh, I could- love cooking. I'd rather talk. Let's talk about stuff. No, about. let's do it. Let's do it. I want to. I keep. I, I want to go back. I want to go back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, all right, let's talk about the filthy satay sticks. Love them. I'm making them. them tomorrow, by the way. I'm making them tomorrow. Actually, I've got to say, you posted something on Instagram the it other was day that fucking was lamb. amazing. Jesus the lamb spit. Christ. You've built a spit thing in your yeah. back garden. I mean, yeah, yeah. talk me through that. So I actually have, I have three barbecues. So I've got what they call, a tr- I know, right? It's insane, but I've got three barbecues and I'm actually going to the spit pit that I built. I'm actually going to, I'm going to make some adjustments and build in some um, other elements to that today um, or tomorrow. But so what I've got is I've got a, a Traeger, which is a slow cooking automated, burns tiny little pellets very, very slowly. And it's amazing for cooking slow cooking meats like um pork butt for you know shredded pork and stuff like mm. that it's amazing incredible slow cooking stuff then i've got a, a kamado joe which is like an, a, a griller um and you can slow cook in that as well uh, it's quite effective but the traeger is you, you can temperature set it it's electric and it just burns these tiny little pellets um and it's amazing the traeger is amazing the kamado joe is amazing then i built the spit pit which is a brick old school aussie barbecue yeah. pit yeah, so and I bricked it up, and it was a, it, it, it um, made these four walls, and then I, I attached some brackets either side, so I could put a spit roasting rod through it, so I can spit roast my own meats. I'm about to do. Uh, I'm going to add some brackets today and have a, a second grill, which will be a very very low 
um, hanging grill above the charcoals so I can do Vietnamese style, Asian style barbecue, you know, when it's just like on top of, like literally just sitting on top of the um, the coals almost. Yep. Mm. So I can do stuff like skewers and that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be cooking some skewers on it. I'm going to do like a mixed grill of skewers sitting on that grate that will I'll just put in some brackets, drop it down. So I'll be able to kind of use it for multi-purposing. So after that, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know there's any barbecue techniques left I, I won't be able to you know abuse I suppose it's like I've got everything have you delved into the world of hibachi yet or is that too well, that's delicate it. no no so the hibachi is interesting because I was talking to my wife about it because she said oh, that you've got everything now except for hibachi and I said no because what I can do is I've made a brick channel so I can put the bricks down there like that put the coals in between it and then right. I can put that gr- grate just above it and boom mm. boom boom Hibachi. And you're doing a lot of pairing with wine, which is not yeah. what, you know, that's not the normal connection that people make in their head, barbecue and wine. This is a big passion of yours at the moment. Yeah, it is. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned um, earlier at the start that, uh, you know, uh, talking about people and what they're doing in lockdown and, you know, people are diving into food or diving into booze. And what I've kind of been doing is I've been diving into barbecue and wine and um, matching wines to specific types of cooking elements and cuisine as well. So um, I've actually got, I'll probably, um, it'll be um, up on my Instagram, but uh, it'll be, the next one is going to be released is actually uh, Vietnamese pork. So I've got a pork butt and I deboned it and cut it into pieces and put it on the spit. But I marinated it for like 30 hours in wow. a Vietnamese kind of lemongrassy, kefir lime, sugar, honey, pepper, all those kind of beautiful elements. Marinated, put it on the skewer, and then rotated it over the fire. And it was insane. And then- <laughs> It's just another. It was like the, it was like the lamb. It just goes to another level. Spit roasting is a completely different style of barbecue, and it's just amazing. So, uh, that's the next one. But um, tomorrow I'm doing skewers. Is this a new discovery for you? This passion, or has food always been there underneath the surface? And COVID's just given you the chance to really lean in. No, I love it. I love cooking. I, that's you know, well, I was really keen to talk to you because I love food and I love cooking and I love I love matching it with wine. And you know, to me, it's just it's. That's what my wife and I like to do the most. So last weekend, you know, I did this kind of amazing spit roast. But then the next day, I had um, a massive bag of purple potatoes that my wife had bought. And I made gnocchi. I hand make my own gnocchi. Yes, 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 gnocchi. You're, you've been doing really well with the handmade gnocchi, Paul. Well, I fell into it. Yeah, I fell into this massive hole. I think I was frustrated because I hadn't had good pan-fried gnocchi in a while. Do you pan-fry yours or just kind of... Yes, um, yeah. Sometimes I do, yeah. Yeah. What do you use for a sauce? Uh, usually just sage and butter and parmesan. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, lovely. Burnt butter, sage and parmesan It's a, and pepper and that's it. And they're just little pillows. I make these little pillows and my, my kids adore it and they can get involved in helping me make it, which is yeah. great. It's actually not that laborious. It's easier than making homemade pasta, which I make as well. But I, I, I love them. I love eating them, so I like, I like making them. Did yep. you grow up in a big foodie household? My mum is probably one of the worst cooks I've ever come across. <laughs> no! <laughs> She's terrible. She can make a mean roast. She, we used to have a lot of roasts when I was young because my dad liked them because he had you know, pretty rudimentary cuisine um, profiles, you know, growing up in the area that he did and the background that he had. And my mum came from a very, very poor family in Broken Hill. And so they didn't really have, you know, high cuisine standards either. But so my mum made really good roasts and everything else was terrible. Like my mum could make tuna mornay a, 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 a war crime. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 So the, no, not really. But my, my parents kind of we're into, we're into food, particularly my dad was really, really into into food. And he used to cook a bit. He wasn't too bad, the old man. But he, he very, very early in our lives, he kind of opened us up to foreign cuisine and, and you know, international kind of flavors. And, you know, uh, we were one of the first families I knew to have olive oil that was not just for cooking, but for like having in things. Yeah. You know, you know like just having bread and dipping bread into oil. Like we were doing that before. I'd kind of seen it anywhere else. That is quite fancy. I can I can gather the sort of uh, you know Australian family that you grew up in, and you're right. That is a that would have been a very fancy thing to do. Well, because we didn't travel. We my parents were like, all right, we're going to go try these different cuisines at different times. So we kind of travelled with our mouths, which sounds horrifying. But mm. okay, do you, I know some people have travelled with their mouths as well. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and they are called sex workers. Merrick, <laughs> I've been some places with this mouth. Listen. Um, <laughs> 
just if this mouth could talk, oh, I'd tell some stories. It's a good thing it can't. Uh, speaking of which, so do you use food to scratch the travel itch now that you're kind of hemmed in? I mean, you mentioned yeah. you know Vietnamese food. Are you traveling with your mouth? <laughs> Mate, that, that's a that's a great question. It really is because you're right. It's exactly what we're doing. Like Georgie and I and the kids love Vietnam. Like I love Vietnam too much. Like that place just suits me. Mm. Relaxed um, laws. I love a country with relaxed laws. <laughs> like you know, I love a country that just says, "Hey, if you've got a scooter, um, two pigs and a chicken, and five children and a wife, and no helmets, and you'd like to smoke." You can do all of those things on your scooter, Tiger, and that is not illegal. Oh yeah, you know that's that's freedom. The Vietnamese have a freedom that we just can't understand. Yeah, no, um, no extradition laws either. So no, it's an amazing country, but their their cuisine is like to me is just phenomenal. I love I love Vietnamese food. I love Vietnamese people. Um, I just love everything about the place, and we can't go there. Um, so yeah, we do. We use we use food and cooking as a way to kind of you know. Take us there for a bit. What's your go-to bun me? Bun me. Uh, I think I just like the old school standards. I don't. I don't like mucking around with it too much and putting in, you know, pork belly, crispy fried stuff. I just like it old school with weird pate. You know, some crazy. You know, um, uh, what looks like ghee, but it's just melted butter. Uh, you know, some <laughs> weird weird gear in there. I love bun me. Um, but I, I like it just traditional as it is. Is there any good Vietnamese over in uh, Maroubra, right? You're over in Maroubra now. Yeah, I'm in Maroubra. Yeah, yeah. There's Vietnamese not far from actually got, it's Maroubra is an incredibly multicultural area. Uh, I, I know that a lot of people kind of associate it with the bra boys and just think it's, you know, white dude surfing. It's actually like the United Nations around here, um, which is awesome. It's, it's just awesome. You know, there's everything. There's lots of French here. There's lots of Greeks, heaps of Greeks. Um, there's lots of Indonesians. There's, it's really quite diverse, Maroubra. Um, so we're fortunate. So we can go out and get ingredients that we might not be able to normally source. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I know that you've got a lot to do today, including adding a whole other dimension to your spit, which is very, very exciting. So we've got to ask you. You're pretty excited. (laughs) It is actually really. We don't have a garden. We can't do that shit. I'm just, I'm going to have to keep living vicariously through your Instagram page for a little while. Do it. So it's time for the big and very important question, which is if you were, well, you are, you are trapped on our island for the rest of eternity. So what is your desert island dish? My favorite dish is a, a Vietnamese dish called Bun Bo Hue. And Bun Bo Hue is the soup of Hue, which is the central city, the old um, capital city of Vietnam. Um, and it sits right near the old DMZ. And Hue is a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, and it has a particular dish. And you can th- they'll make it in other parts of the country, but it is soup of Hue. Now, soup of Hue, uh, Bun Bo Hue, is um, like a vermicelli noodle. It's a soup which is weird for, for me to have my last meal as a yeah. soup. It's, but it's a spicy pork broth that's very clear and, and, and delicious and delicate, but it's quite spicy. And then in there, they usually have uh, some pork, like pretty rough cuts of pork, by the way, like, you know, rough. Um, there's a little bit like a fish paste in there as well, mm. usually. And the, it'll have, usually it'll have coagulated blood cubes as well. Whoa. So, yeah, it has has like these, you'll see them, they're like, uh, and most Aussies don't like to eat them. I don't mind them, but I don't, they're not my favorite part. But traditionally, yeah, you'll, you'll have coagulated blood cubes and the noodles, and it's just very fragrant and rich, and it's just, it's just delicious. It's my absolute favorite meal on the planet. Blood cubes, are they like dice? Are they like scabs? Like, what are we talking here? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 what they do is, I don't really know the process. Of it. I think they just get blood, and they kind of, they boil it up, and it just goes into a, into a, like quite a firm jelly, right. and then they just slice it into like lengths or cubes, and they just chuck it in. And there's a few pieces in there, what I, I sometimes refer to lovingly as mystery meat. Um, <laughs> it's mystery meat because you, you just don't know. You've got no idea. what I don't even know what animal it's from sometimes. And I'm just like, man, I'm here. Let's do this. Let's just eat this. I've got to be honest. I'm a bit, I mean, it sounds lovely and it sounds, you know, fragrant and oh. beautiful. I'm getting a bit of a ramen, I'm getting a Vietnamese a ra- ramen yeah, vibe. I'm getting a ramen from hell uh, vibe, yeah. Not from hell. When did you first have this? And is it also that it has a, a connection to an important moment in your life? Or, you know, that's that's a I, big, as you said, you're picking soup, Merrick. It's a soup. Yeah, I know. And look, the funny thing is it's it's 
like possibly the worst dish that I can imagine trying to match with wine as well. Like it makes no sense. So if I, if I was going to have a meal with wine, Mm. I'd probably pick something else, but, but as a food, you know, Mm. speaking kind of puritanically, uh, as a food, it's Bumba Hui. And the first time I had it, I remember very clearly, I had it at a Vietnamese restaurant on, um, Victoria street in Melbourne called Van Van's. And I used to eat at Van Van's every week, at least once a week, usually when I was extremely hungover. And I find it a cure-all. Anyway, so I'd go there and I'd have fur or I'd have uh, hotu or one of the others. See how good my pronunciation is. You are doing well. Dishes. Um, and then one time I, I had this spicy pork noodle dish and I just went, oh, game changed permanently. This is insane. Mm. What is this? And then when I subsequently went and traveled to Vietnam and I went to Hue and I had it, uh, and it was very different in Hue. It was far more mystery meat. It was a bit, it was quite different, (laughs) but I was like, this is just mind-blowingly amazing. And I've never, ever marched back from it. That is the dish, Bun Bo Hue. I want to put your uh, just quickly put your wine pairing skills to the test. Now, when you're pairing, when you're pairing a wine with a dish, let's say we're pairing with Bumba Hui, right? So, mm-hmm. what element of that dish do you zero in on as the kind of focal point for the pairing? Is it the blood cubes, in which case you're going for a really like thick red, like a Pinot or something, or is it that like mm-hmm. how do you pair? Another good question. That's two from you today. Oh, thanks, um, so yeah, I mean, Tegan's had one. <laughs> <laughs> to be a frank, look, if, if I do a podcast where I'm asked like one kind of insightful question like that, I'm like, yeah, that was a good day. There we go. So yeah, to match it, the answer is what you do first of all is look at the composition of the the, the dish and you just go, well, the first thing is it's umami, right? Which is the hardest thing to match wine to. Mm. It's umami, it's salty, uh, but also too, it's quite fragrant as well and delicate in it. Um, it's not quite r- as rich and unctuous as a ramen. It's more like a clear soup that's got a, a slick of uh, chili oil in it. Mm. Um, so I'd look at that and I'd say, all right, umami, hard to match against. Um, but then you go, what's, what are the proteins? So there's pork, there's a bit of pork fat in there. So when you see something that's fatty, you want to get something that's acidic in a wine to cut through the fat. And also too with umami, sometimes nice light white wines and acidic wines will be less clashing with, uh, umami flavors. They won't present as much. And also too, you want something that's going to go with the fragrance of, of the dish and, and highlight those kind of perfumed elements. So what I'd be looking at is probably a Riesling, a cold Riesling. Riesling's a good one for that, um, or even a rosé. You'd have a crack at a rosé or a Riesling. But for me, probably with Bumba Hui, I'd have a Riesling, the nice apple kind of structure and acid line and limeness of like a a, um, a Clare Valley Riesling. It'd be perfect. Limey flavors would go well with the lime juice that's going to be put in the Bumba Hui. Mm. Uh, the acid line from uh, naturally high acid uh, in Riesling, it's going to cut any fat there, but it's still delicate enough that it's not going to you know, butt heads within any of those umami flavors. That's the wine for it. I think we should... Okay, so... So normally, Tegan and I only allow people to bring one dish on. I think we're going to let you, as an exception, bring the dish and the Riesling. Do you think that's okay? I think that would be lovely. Okay, great. Because right now, all I can think about is drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should actually point out, too, that the, the Riesling I'm talking about doesn't come from a bottle. It comes from a foodra, which is several hundred litres I'm okay with of that. delicious Riesling. <laughs> yeah, okay. So you picked the right wine. If, right. I'm, if, I'm, yeah, if I'm going to an island, I'm not taking a bottle, guys. I'm bringing a food drop. I'm bringing an enormous barrel, and I'm just going to drink from that tap. And the bonus is that once you've drank all the wine, you can then repurpose the wood and try and build an escape craft. You won't be able to escape, but we, we will enjoy your efforts. All right. We'll just... Yeah. I know. Yeah, we'll let you go. I, just, I have one last question. My dad is of the opinion yeah. that we are in the luckiest country for wine in the world. He thinks that you can get some of the best wine and you don't have to spend over $30 for it. Mm. Do you agree with him? Yeah, 100%. And it's right. And I say this because in Australia, we're capable of growing any grape, mm. any grape that you can find in the world. You know, there's some really, really rare varieties of grapes that we can grow in this country because we've got such a broad um, geographical kind of composition as well. So, you know, we can grow cool climate wines in places like Beechworth and the Alpine regions in Tasmania uh, and even parts of the Adelaide Hills. Um, but, you know, things like Sauvignon Blanc and Riesling and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but also too, we, we can grow warmer climate stuff like um, Nero d'Avola and, and some of those Italian varieties as well that we can grow in places like the, you know, the Riverina, uh, sorry, Riverland of, uh, of South Australia. So 
we can grow pretty much anything and we, we make it well. We've got really good standards and we, we are a very, very well-formed wine country. So if I was to, honestly, if somebody said to me, you can only ever drink wine produced from one country for the rest of your life, bang, we're already here. Yeah, wow. We really are. Like France can't do what we can do. Italy can't do what we can do. They're close. Italy's pretty close. France can't. But yeah, we're capable of growing pretty much everything here, except for ice vine. We we don't make ice vine here because ice vine, ice vines for the Germans occasionally, and also too for the Canadians. They like to, but mainly for the Germans, they like ice vine, and it has to be. It actually has to freeze on the vine. Oh no way! It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's a type of grape typically, but it needs the the grapes themselves will mature and then they will freeze absolutely solid on the vine. They leave them there and they concentrate very, very heavily in sugars. So it becomes ice vines very, very sweet. Right. Wow. I think I think honestly, and I think you're gonna have to be the official sommelier for Dish Island. Yay! I think yeah, although oh, I, love it. I mean, the problem is, of course, we do have space for a vineyard, but uh, that's where the smoke monster from Lost lives. So you're going to have to contend with that, unfortunately. <laughs> is there any great grapes of mirth show that people uh, should know about coming up that they can get tickets for? Can any still go ahead? Yeah, well, I mean, that's right. I mean, it's a bit of a, a constant struggle. We put on events anyway. We've had to cancel um, events in the past because of COVID, but we've got one we just announced on Thursday of Thursday the 12th, a massive one in Sepultsfield in South Australia. So Sepultsfield is one of the absolute doyens of Australian wine. In fact, it's got the oldest unbroken vintage of wines in the world. Whoa. No one has a longer unbroken vintage of wines in Sepultsfield. Uh, dates back like 100, almost 150 years. And so we're going to take it over. They've got a massive two-day festival in Sepultsfield in South Australia. I mean, thank God it's in South Australia. Mm. I mean, really? Mm. Because they're, you know, a bit, not exactly a COVID hotspot, but that's a, it's going to be a huge one, a two-day festival for Grapes and Mirth there. So if you're listening to this and you're in South Australia or you can travel there, come along. It's going to be epic. It's in October. Awesome. Late October. Oh, great. I wish I could go to that. I know. I'm very... I, I, God damn it. We might. You never know. Hey, Victoria hey, might. Hey, guys, I'm hoping I can get to my <laughs> own festival. I mean, fair dinkum. Fitting, yeah. but yeah, look, we'll be right. All right. Well, look, thank you so much. Really, thank you for coming on the island. Thank you for sharing so much with us. And Paul, build a fit for God's sake. Yeah, Paul, be a man and make 14 barbecues in your house and have your missus ask you, why do we have so many barbecues <laughs> when we could just have one or we could eat indoors or maybe we could go to a restaurant at some stage? No, I'm making a spit pit. So manly. Makes me furious. Well, thank you so much, Merrick, and enjoy the island. Pleasure. Holy crap, what a guy. I know, he's so inspiring. And what's even better is if you follow him on Instagram, he truly has continued that SAS sort of push yourself to the limit, become a weapon sort of ethos. Because even in lockdown, he is physically challenging himself. I mean, it looks like it's every day, but he's doing incredible things. And I've got to admit, I realised that I got into the habit during this lockdown in Mm. Melbourne, because we're back in lockdown, looks like we're going to be in for a while. I realised I was just waiting And I'd forgotten to set myself those little challenges that keep you, kind of keep you sane. Yeah. Uh, You've got, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean when you return home. I didn't have anything. And <laughs> no, 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 you say that, but you did earlier on in one of the earlier lockdowns. You went through this incredible, like you got really obsessed almost to the degree which I do with things. You got completely laser focused on a goal that you actually mentioned to Merrick. So you were going to go on the show at I, one point. Look, yes. I mean, I don't know. I was certainly laser focused in my head. Okay. Yes. Okay, I know that we've got, we've already done the full episode and I don't want to keep people too long. We've all got other things to do, but I'll tell you the story really quickly. So I, as you all know, got a a job last year, a normal person adult job, and it's great. And I really love all the people that I work with. And last year, just as we all came out of the second big lockdown in Melbourne, I was invited to a work Christmas party, dressed up, you know, dressed to the nines, actually, because it was the first time that I'd been out in a long time. Met my friends at this station and we're all going to go to the pub we were having the Christmas party I walked into the pub said hello everybody and as I stuck my hand up in the air kind of lost my balance and fell down a single step just one step wasn't even a bad fall but as I came down my finger clipped on the step Mm. and bent completely backwards now I've jumped up and you know when you're around a group of people and these were my friends but I'd only ever met them online before so I didn't know them 
very, very well. And I was just trying to play it cool. So everybody's like, oh, Higginbotham, she fell down a step. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> lol. Meanwhile, um, I was kind of starting to panic because this pain, this, this terrible pain was starting to grow in my hand. And I showed my hand to one of my colleagues. Her name is Paige. And Paige's face just kind of changed. And I went, oh, that's not good. So I was just standing there holding onto my hand and people were like, oh, we'll get you a drink, we'll get you a drink. Then something new started happening, which is that I started losing my hearing. And as someone with low blood pressure, this is the first sign that I'm about to pass out. I lose my hearing mm -hmm. and then I start seeing these weird blotches like you see in film, the little boop things that happen in film, those actually start appearing in front of my eyes. So I turned to my colleague, Davey, who's the loveliest bloke, and I was like, hey, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm just, I need to faint now. <laughs> and then I blacked out, gone, gonzos, woke up again, very embarrassed. By this stage, I was actually feeling more embarrassed than I was hurt. My, my lovely boss, her name is Kate, she was just being, doing that wonderful job of really, really looking after me. But she's looked at the hand and she's like, look, I can tell you it's not broken, okay? I, I, my husband plays sport. It's probably just dislocated. Just keep a cold flannel on it. But internally, I knew already that something was very wrong. So I hopped in an Uber. I was meant to be heading home. Instead, I got in the Uber and went, yeah, you'll be taking me to the hospital now. Thanks. At, at this point, you called me. It, you'd been gone about an hour at this point. And I, I'd settled in for a long night of pirate-themed video games. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, here we go. I, I think I cracked open a cider or something. And you're, you're like, hey, so, uh, baby, I'm just uh, heading to the hospital. Uh, no need to panic, but uh, I've broken my finger. Trying to keep this long story a little bit short, it wasn't just broken. It was very, very broken. There were three breaks in the um, the lower part of the finger. Yeah. Another break at the top of the finger. Like, it just shattered. It was this, smashed. Yeah. And this happened in December of last year. And I'm going to be honest, it's still not better. You're up for your third surgery soon. Yeah, I'm going in for my third surgery soon. And this one... Oh, Man, it sounds so bad. If you're squeamish, take your headphones out for just 10 seconds, okay? Everybody else, they're going to take tendon from my wrist and weave it into my finger to try and fix the tendon that's not firing in my finger. Oh, man, it's just... Then I have to keep my finger completely still for six weeks. Then they're not going to be sure because it's going to be still for six weeks whether I'll be able to bend it again. Yeah. It's... Oh. And it was around the point where Tegan's finger was broken that she started to show some interest in uh, joining up on <laughs> SAS. And the vain hope was that her finger would be magically better. And we're sitting there watching this show well, I going... I didn't realise how broken it was. I didn't realise what I'd done. Yeah, it's really bad. Like, to the point where basically every single challenge on this show, we were going, yeah, it's probably best that you don't go on it. So basically talking to Merrick and hearing about the incredible traumas that his body and mind went through. And yeah. just, I'm really glad you didn't go on the show. But what's interesting, listen is Tegan is going to be laid up after her next surgery for quite a while. She's not going to be able to use her hand. Cooking is going to be really challenging. Mm. I would like to issue everyone a a request. If you have any recipes that can be cooked with one hand <laughs> or if you have any advice for Tegan to get through this period, please let us know. Hit us up on the Dish Island Instagram. We always love hearing from listeners. Well, once again, I'm feeling inspired after listening to the wonderful stories of one of our incredible guests. I'm inspired to get into the kitchen mm -hmm. and try his Vietnamese pork butt. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> yeah, Merrick's recipes sound incredible. Make sure you go across and follow him on Instagram because it's literally, it's either screamingly painful workouts or food and wine. There's nothing in between. And make sure you follow us on Instagram because we post all kinds of fun stuff over at Dish Island. And next week's guest is so, she's so amazing. I still can't believe that we're going to get to speak to her. Oh my God. She's, we're such a big fan. Anyway. Anyway. Stay well, everyone. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish is part of the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.